Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, brothers and sisters. Welcome to another online service. Welcome to the service. Welcome to church this morning, brothers and sisters. It is wonderful to see you here today. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to kick off in chapter 5, and I'll explain why in a moment. Now, one of the things that's happened in this pandemic is that I have learned to cook. I've been doing a lot of cooking with my wife, and my wife, who's greatly encouraging to me and and, and my culinary skills as I seek to sort of improve in various areas, it's been a great blessing to cook. And one of the things that we've been doing is we've been ordering those boxes online that you can get, whether it's uh, HelloFresh that Woolworths gives or whatever it is. Uh, Our particular one we get is Marley Spoon. And Marley Spoon, I found, is really interesting because it gives you all the ingredients you need for the meal, You follow the instructions that are laid out for you, and in those instructions, they tell you the first thing. Step one, read through the whole recipe. Just read through the whole recipe. Know how everything goes from start to finish, so you know what's there. Then it says, prepare all your vegetables. So you prepare all your vegetables. And then you just follow the instructions, and then prayerfully, if all the instructions are followed, you have this wonderful meal that is a delight to the palate. And, and if you ask my wife, she'll say that I've done pretty well. I'm not up to her level yet. I mean, she's somebody who can, she can taste it and she goes, it needs something. And she'll add one or two things and like just bam, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I, have, I haven't reached that, that level yet. But uh, prayerfully through much practice, which I'll be, I'll be cooking dinner tomorrow, um, we'll, be, we'll be getting better over time. Now, the reason why I want to kick off with that is because as you look through the book of Thessalonians, we've been looking at a book of encouragement. Whether it be encouraging you to live godly, whether it be encouraging you to persevere, whether it be encouraging you to please God, we start now in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 looking at more encouragements that come through preparation. He begins this whole series of instructions, these final instructions, to enable us to be prepared for what is to come. You see, I've skipped 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5, because that's a series that looks at the Lord's return. It looks at the eschatological, which is a flash way of saying the study of the end times, which is something I want us to look at later on in another series as we look at the end times. So I've skipped that passage and I'm looking to get back to that in a couple of weeks' time after Jono next week is going to bring the word to us and finish off these final instructions for us. There's an acronym for the word Bible. And I learned this as a very young Christian, and I know we teach this to the kids in Sunday school, but it's called uh, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. And essentially, this is what we're looking at today. Some basic instructions and in preparation for us to encourage us to walk worthy of the calling, to walk worthy of the kingdom, to walk worthy of the Lord who has called us into his presence. So, before we look at these practical instructions from the Apostle Paul, or through the Apostle Paul, let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll study the Scriptures together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the instructions you've imparted to us. And I pray as we look now, you, by your Spirit, will open our eyes to see, will open our ears to hear, will soften our hearts to respond to your spirit and to the convictions that he lays upon our hearts even now. Please guide us now, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. 
So, after spending some time in chapter 4, end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, looking at the Lord's return, he encourages these believers by directing their vision, by looking at their future hope, that their future hope is in the return of Jesus Christ. He then moves into these practical applications, these, these practical instructions in how to live in light of the Lord's return. It's much like when my parents would go away and they'd go off overseas and they'd give us a list of instructions on what the house has to be like when they get back. Now, more often than not, we would wait till the last day and then we'd try to get everything done before they got back. We can't do this in our relationship with the Lord. It's not like we, could, we don't know when he's coming. That's it. With my parents, we know. They say, oh, we'll be back on this date, October 25th. This date, we're going to be back. Okay. Then we wait till October 24th and we get everything that we need to get done but we're told with the Lord's return that it's going to be like a thief in the night. We're not going to know when he's going to return. Thus, we need to be prepared. And he starts off with these preparations in light of the Lord's return, in light of a loved one's return. And in preparation for that loved one's return, Paul initiates today's encouragement by one, our exhortation via comparison. And that's found in verses 6 and 7. It's our exhortation via comparison. Now I know within the scriptures we're told not to compare ourselves with each other in a negative sense. Don't go around saying things like, oh, look, I'm, I'm not as good looking as Jimmy or you know, I'm not as wise as Pastor John or you know, I'm not as, I'm not as like, tech-minded as, or as athletic as John. You have those sorts of negative comparisons which... It's considered a negative thing because it can stir within us envy. Envy is sin. It stirs within us a sinful attitude. If you have a look at that, you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It talks about that that is considered unwise. To compare ourselves against ourselves is considered unwise. This comparison, though, is in a positive sense in that it speaks directly to our preparation and development while we wait for the Lord's return. Because in verse 6, we read this. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Who are the, who are the others? Who are the others who are asleep that he is referring to here? Uh, who is he comparing us or challenging us to be compared to? And I, I think the imagery he uses describes Christians that are ignorant of what is taking place. Uh, Christians that are apathetic. Christians that are spiritually lethargic in their attitudes towards God and toward God's bigger plan. Or they just don't care. I think that's what he's making reference because because you see a number of times within Scripture there are these exhortations. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15.34 we read, Come back to your senses as you ought. In the New King James it says, Awake, awake unto righteousness. In Romans 13 11, it says to wake up from your slumber. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, wake up sleeper from the dead. Or in the case of a literal dead church, the church of Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains. I know I've used this passage before, but the exhortation the Lord has most probably even, okay, the exhortation that the Lord gives, should I say, 
which probably has the most relevance today with everything that's taking place in the world, whether it be a pandemic, whether it be political upheaval, whether it be just societal unrest, the challenge for us is to be aware of what's going on, to be prepared and be able to identify what's taking place around us. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, we read this. Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. This is why he's saying that we have to be sober, that we have to be awake, to be able to identify what's taking place around us. For those of you on the YouTube channel and online, I've been interviewing various people from the church, and I've interviewed four people so far, Allison and Jonathan, Evelyn and Jimmy, and it was wonderful to be able to do that. And I asked them two questions. One of those questions was this. Why has God allowed this global pandemic to take place? And each of the answers they gave, I thought, were actually very, very good. I thought, it, whether it be the stripping away of our identity, whether it be an exercise of faith, whether it's a shake-up of the church, whether it be just a challenge for what we think God is doing, all wonderful answers. If you want to have a look, go to our YouTube channel, have a look at the things. It's called this little bit or something I don't know what to call or this whole thing, whatever it is. I think I've, I've, I think I've ended up on a title, which, which would be on Jimmy's one. But here's the thing. I want to add one more thing to that as to why this global pandemic has taken place, is because God is preparing to bring things about in this world. That positions are taking place. There are things that are taking place in this world today that are preparing us for God's plan in the future. Whether it be in Galatians 4.4 when it says, when the fullness of time had come, God brought forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. Why? There was a plan. There's a plan that God's setting in place even now, and the positions are moving, the pieces are moving in preparation for that, and I think it's very interesting. Um, have a look at my two cents, which will be, uh, be coming out in a couple of weeks' time regarding that. But it's, it's very interesting seeing what God is doing, because there are too many people today, both inside and outside of the church, that have become so comfortable with their lives, so comfortable with just existing as Christians or existing, going through the religious motions, that we have forgotten to identify what God is doing in the bigger plan, what God is doing in the bigger picture. And this guy named Paul Chapel stated this, Now is not the time to ease up, but to charge forward and to continue living for the Lord. Now is not the time to ease up, and it's not, but it's time for us to charge forward and to continue living for the Lord. A guy named Smith Wigglesworth confirms this idea when he says, God has given us much in these days, and where much is given, much will be required. That is what we are burdened with as the children of the living God. We profess to know truth. We profess to know the secret to life. We profess to know the meaning of our existence. And if we profess to know these things, that should be reflected not in what we think, but in what we do, in how we live, in what we prioritize. That's the reality of how something, or the reality of, of something in your life is evidenced by what you do. I've, I've, I've used this quote by Henry Blackaby, and I think it's a great quote, which is applicable here now, which is why I want to say it. But he said, what you do next... What you do next with the truth that God has revealed to you will reveal what you believe about God. What you do next with the truth that has been revealed to you will reveal or manifest what you really believe about God. 
What you really believe about his word. What you really believe about his plan. What you really believe about what's taking place in the world today. And that, that is a challenge for you and I. It, it is why we are told to be sober and to be vigilant. Why for our adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks around seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. That is why at the end of verse 6 we read, and flowing into verse 7, let us be awake and sober for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. I like the imagery there. I mean, sleep is self-explanatory. Sleep is about you having a rest. Sleep is about you taking it easy. But also sleep it means, means that you, just, you, you don't care. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sleeping. I mean, I, I love my sleep. I enjoy sleeping. I, I'm now at that age where I like my midday naps. And I think midday naps, I mean, I, I reckon we should go the way of the South American countries that should have siestas. I mean, I, I think we should, I advocate for that personally. That, that's online now. I advocate for midday siestas. But anyway, okay, maybe some politician can get in touch with me. But being drunk, getting drunk at night, the thing about stuff at night is, is people think they have a license to get away with stuff at night. Thieves do stuff at night. Crooks do stuff at night. Man, the stuff that we want to do that we know we shouldn't do, we do at night. Why? Because we think nobody sees us. And being drunk at night means this. It means being under the influence of something else. Being under the influence of another spirit. Being under the influence of another desire. I mean, being drunk means being consumed with something else that may not be of God. We are told not to be drunk with wine, we're in his excess, according to Ephesians 5 verse 18, but to be filled or to be controlled by the Spirit. Being drunk is about being, being, having a loss of control. And, and have you ever noticed, now I haven't been drunk in a very, very long time. I've been a Christian now for 29 years and, and I haven't touched alcohol in that time. And I used, to, I used to get drunk a lot. And I remember one time, this is one story for my brothers and stuff who know back home, but I remember one time I, I got drunk, I went out, I got drunk, I got home, and my dad was leaving the house. I would have been about maybe 16 or 17. And my dad, I, my, at least looking at me with such disappointment, I know, that is illegal, that is illegal. Don't do that, don't do it. If someone says to you, take a drink, don't. Okay, anyway. So I was coming out, and my dad was coming out, and his car had a flat tire. And so I, I hopped out of the car. All my mates who dropped me off sat there. They drove, hey, Mr. Helg, Mr. Helg, Joe's been drinking. He's really drunk right now, sir. And straight away, because of fear and adrenaline and the fear of my dad's discipline, loving discipline, yeah, I sobered up like that. I was like, and he goes, son, come help me change the tire. I was like, woo, man, I was, I was good. Oh, I think the adre- things that, there are things that shock you into, into soberness. Okay, there are things that shock. And I think sometimes for us, even as Christians, in our spiritual lethargy, we need to be shocked, shocked out of our spiritual lethargy, out of our spiritual selfishness, out of our spiritual like, self-absorbedness. We need to be shocked out of that. And that's got to come about by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who, can, who, who washes over us as water to, to refresh us to wake us up out of that, to shock us out of our system. Sometimes God allows things that are hard to shock us out of our, out of our lethargy. This, and John shared this when I interviewed him, this whole thing that took place, the global pandemic, one of his things was basically that, to shock the church, to wake up the church, 
to mobilize the church. Maybe we know, may not be gathered here, and Pastor John shared this via the devotional one time, how he shared there are now churches in people's homes. There are churches in the home where people can worship and gather people around. We start on time now. We start at 10.15 on the dot. That's, man, we've, we've, done, we've tried to start on time for years. For years. It took a global pandemic to get this church to start at 10.15 on the dot. And even then, people are still coming in late. But we're starting. So maybe, maybe, maybe there should be something to wake us up, to shock us out of our spiritual stupor, and, and so that the, the cool, refreshing, just as the wave of the Holy Spirit just comes upon us to wake us up out of that, to wake us up out of our spiritual slumber, to see and recognize God's hand at work, to sharpen our spiritual senses, to know what he's doing, to, to identify what's going on around us. Perhaps that's what needs to take place within each of our hearts, within each of your hearts. And in so doing, with this comparison, he then points to this. The second point says, our equipping via our belonging. Our equipping via our belonging. If you, if you don't already know, I'm a bit of a rugby fan. I'm a bit of a rugby fan, and I watched a documentary on the All Blacks because they're the greatest team in the world. Now, I watch this thing. Now, what's interesting about belonging to and it's any professional sports team, my, uh, my cousin who played for the California Angels, he, well, he made it to the minor leagues, and he got recruited by the California Angels, and he went there. But he said even in the minor leagues, what they supply you is absolutely amazing. You go there. So this guy who goes in, this all black, he goes in. And they, they have everything there. They show up. They give you socks. They give you boots. They give you your, your shorts. They, 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 they get your measurements so everything fits properly. Not only your, your, your actual kit for the field, they give you everything you need off that as well. So they give you your, your blazer. You give you your tie and your, 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 your shirt and your trousers and all that sort of stuff. They even give you the nice shoes. They give you everything you need. Why? Because you belong to that specific team. So in the 150-odd years, this exclusive group of rugby players known as the All Blacks, there's been maybe a little bit under 2,000 players of this exclusive team. They have everything provided for them in order for them to perform to the best of their ability on the field and off it. Does that make sense? Now, I am told here in verse 8 of because of whom I belong to, of what I have been given in my equipping to enable me and you to live to the best of the ability God has given you. I read in verse 8, Since we belong to the day, I now have in Christ this following equipping. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Because of whom I belong to, because of who we belong to, we have been made available to us this equipping. Faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Much like having a collection of outfits laid out like, uh, like this rugby player or, or, or like my cousin. I mean, it's, it's not like Jono when he goes to play basketball and he has all these outfits laid out. It's not like he's going to choose a jacket, trousers and nice dress shoes to go play basketball. No, he'll choose the outfit that's appropriate for the situation. He'll wear that which will enable him to jump higher and run faster and, and dribble the ball better. He'll do all that sort of stuff. And we are given a more exhaustive list of what this armor is in Ephesians chapter 8. But the bare bones of that armor is listed here in verse 8. Faith. 
for without which we cannot please God, according to Hebrews 11.6. Love, the greatest of all commands, upon which now we hang all the law, according to Matthew 22.37-40. And the hope of salvation and hope that casts down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing everything into obedience in 2 Corinthians 10.5. And if you notice, these three things, these are the exact three things that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. We read that and he says in verse 13, verse 12 and 13, it says, Now I know in part, and I shall know fully, even as I am known, or fully known, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And with this love being the greatest of these three, Paul continues this encouragement in verses 9 and 10. He says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Which points to this third thing, our privilege via remembrance. Our privilege via remembrance. We are a forgetful people. In the midst of difficulty, we forget what has taken place before. In the suffering of the hurt, we forget of the comfort that we've received. In the midst of disappointment, we forget of all the times of fulfillment. In continual focusing on our lack, we completely overlook the excess of abundance that we have been given. Case in point, and in talking with my wife about this current pandemic, we have, we have zeroed in on all of the restrictions, of all of the limitations of what's taken place. And you'll notice that a lot of our minds focus on yourself. And it was mentioned in those interviews I have, just how selfish we are. One person mentioned, I think it was Alison, who said that this pandemic has brought out the worst in people. And it has. You saw that how, I mean, toilet paper. Toilet paper was just, you go and you couldn't get toilet paper. And when I was in New Zealand when that started, and everyone in New Zealand was like, what's with Australians and toilet paper? What's their obsession? And it's just that, I mean, I had to bring a suitcase of toilet paper from New Zealand. Back to Australia. It was that bad. And I still haven't used it, just in case Australians go crazy again. But, okay? But, 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 okay. But we have, we have zeroed in all of this stuff. We have zeroed in on how it affects us so much that we've forgotten that there have been hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that have passed into a Christless eternity. We have overlooked the fact that this opportunity we have to shine a light into a world of darkness, there are people that are killing themselves. There are people who have lost jobs. There are people that, that are just completely feel hopeless in this situation. We've completely overlooked. I mean, I look around now and raise your hands, those of you who still have a job. This is, for those of you at home, everybody. That's everybody. We are in a privileged position as a church who are still working now to make an impact on those who have lost so much. Even at the gym, I've met several guys who have lost their jobs and have had, who are my age who have to get reskilled and find another career because they've lost their jobs. And, and the reason why I want to remind you guys of this is because we as Christians, as individuals, and sometimes even maybe even as a church, 
we still find something to complain about, about how something has affected me. About how something has put me out in some way. It sort of shows how we, even in this, have prioritised us over what we can do for others, especially for the kingdom of God. Because we are a forgetful people. And I really want us to understand that as forgetful as we are, what Paul does here, due to various circumstances or due to various worries or due to various attitudes that, that may take place upon us, what Paul does is remind these people here, and I want you to be reminded of, of it as well, of these three privileges that have been bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. One, that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Two, we receive salvation through Jesus Christ. And three, that we may live together with him. That's what Paul does. Paul changes their focus here, and it's, to, it's, it's the whole reason to change our focus too. Instead of looking at how I've been put out, instead of looking at, oh, woe is me, to look at, well, this is what I have been given in Christ. Privileges that we forget and, and, and we remember this. These privileges are brought about by this one fact. Because he died for us. He died for us. And that's what I want you to think on. These privileges. The fact that I am no longer the recipient of God's wrath. The fact that I'm no longer condemned to hell. The fact that I am no longer alienated, separated, or isolated from God is bestowed upon me because he died for me. It is a privilege to be called a son or a daughter of God. It is a privilege for me to come to church. I mean, it's really a privilege now, considering it's only just recently been opened up. It is a privilege to gather here like this and to worship God as a body of believers. It is a privilege to gather in your homes now to invite people over to spend time in prayer and in song and in worship and in ministry of the word. It is a privilege to be able to do so. It is a privilege to be able to serve when given that chance. It is a privilege to sing to him, to pray to him, and to the fact that when we pray, he he hears us. He gave us these privileges on his son whose back was scourged for my sin. These privileges are granted on the shedding of his blood for my offenses. These privileges are presented to me by nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet that were nailed to a cross from a life that was freely sacrificed for me. And they are privileges that are secured for me from his resurrection from the dead. That's why it's important to remember. That's why it's a privilege that we need to be reminded of. When you read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34, it speaks to this. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, get this, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
Look at what we have received in Jesus. This we have gained by His death. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. 1 John 3.16 See, sometimes, sometimes we need to just stop. We need to be still just to reassess and be reminded of the privileges we have received, yes, but more importantly, by the means from which those privileges are received through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 19b to 21 says this, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. This power we have received in the person of Christ as his child. So, in our exhortation via comparison, in our equipping via our belonging, in our privilege via our remembrance, we close with this fourth practical instruction. Our building via encouragement in verse 11. I have seen demeanors change through a word of encouragement. I have seen hardship endured by someone being encouraging and coming along somebody else, uh, especially in, in those hardships. I have seen relationships reconciled through encouragement, through godly counsel. I have seen churches strengthened in unity and in goal and in purpose as they've been encouraged in the congregation. Chuck Swindoll said this, Encouragement is awesome. It can actually change the course of another person's day, year, or life. Encouragement is awesome. And we are told in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Encouragement is one of the few things that, in order to in order for one to receive the greatest benefit from it, it must first be active in giving out. It's, uh, it's uh, Matthew 16, 25. It says, whoever loses their life shall find it. Whoever saves their lives will lose it. It's the economy of God that when something's given, something is gained. This is because encouragement is an expression of love. And as one gives out love, as one gives out encouragement, one finds that they receive as well. Not, not in the sense of, I'm going to encourage someone because it makes me feel good. I want to encourage someone because it makes me feel better about myself. Rather, I want to encourage someone because I want to see their growth, because I want to see their betterment. I want to see, I want to see, I want to, I want to see their development. See, this was, that's what the agape love does. Agape love sacrificially gives for the benefit of others. And that's the reason why encouragement is given out. This is Paul's attitude to Thessalonians. It is, it is God's attitude to us. It is a loving parent's attitude to their child. It is a, it is a, a, a peer's attitude, a good peer's attitude for their friends. And it is the default position that you and I are to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the default position that we be encouraging, that we encourage each other 
for living for godliness and, and living for holiness and living for righteousness. We encourage each other in those things because we can also have the, the negative impact as well if we, okay, if, if, if we direct them to that which is wrong. Ravi Zacharias said this, what you applaud, you encourage. So beware what you celebrate. What you applaud, applaud, you encourage, but beware what you celebrate. But you'll notice in Paul's letters in the Colossians and the Ephesians, he hits these same thoughts. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20 says this, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that there's a twofold thing there. There's one of what you do to each other, for each other, toward each other, but there's also that which takes place inwardly. They're encouraged that you have received that you give out to others as freely as you, as freely as you have received, then freely give. It is a combination of personal devotion and mutual encouragement. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Once again, it is the combination of personal devotion and mutual encouragement. If one is encouraged in the Lord, then such encouragement can be expressed in encouraging others, which in turn can be an encouragement too. It's, it's almost circular. I've been encouraged. I want to bless somebody else and to encourage them. So I encourage Elizabeth. Oh, sister, you're such a blessing. I want to encourage you with this. And then she gets encouraged. And then she, she, there's a smile on her face, which I see the encouragement that God brings within her life. And then God uses her encouragement and the fact that she's encouraged to encourage me again. And I'm encouraged again. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go encourage Jenny now. And, and to bless, it's a circular thing. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. Why? Because it's about being others-focused. And in that encouraging, you'll find a building up naturally takes place. Now, when I say encouragement, it is encouragement that is based on truth. Okay? An encouragement based on truth. An encouragement grounded in the Word of God. Don't, don't be like, don't, don't lie to people, eh? Oh, man, you sing really well, and they can't sing. No. You look really good, and they don't. No. That's... I'm not, I'm not looking at anybody. I'm trying to... I'm, I'm looking at a wall now. Okay? But you know, you know what I mean? You, you know, that's not encouragement. That's deception. That's not encouragement. That's manipulation. That's what that is. Encouragement is a betterment for, the benefit, for their betterment, their development, and their relationship with God. But that building up naturally takes place. In a nutshell, I'm going I'm to sum up by saying this. All these instructions that Paul gives at the beginning of his closing, our exhortation, our equipping, our privilege, and our building, and are done so in order for us to be encouraged to live godly, to be encouraged to persevere, to be encouraged to please God, and to be encouraged in being prepared. Now, here's the thing about instructions. Knowing the instruction is only one part of it. Adhering to the instruction is something completely different. It means actually stepping out and doing something with the instruction or responding to the instruction given. Otherwise, it's useless. I can read my Marley Spoon recipe for as much as I want. I can read how I need to chop, chop up my, my sweet potato into two centimeter um, cubes and that I've got to put it in a bowl of water and boil it for, for 10 minutes until it's soft. 
I, I can look at all that. I can read. I can know all of that. But my, my family is not going to get fed if I've read the recipe and just, I know it. My kids will come up to me and say, Dad, what's for dinner? Oh, we're having a sweet potato pie. Where is it? I read the recipe. Is it ready? Oh, no, no, I've just read the recipe. I know what needs to be done. And? Yeah. That's essentially what happens here. If we read through the instructions and think, wow, I know that I'm to persevere. I know that I'm to live godly. I know that I'm to please God. I know that that is how I'm supposed to live. Yeah, I know that. And if it doesn't go any further than that, then all of this and all of this, useless. Useless. It's absolutely pointless to do. That's not why we've been equipped in such a way. It's for us to respond to such things. That we are prepared through such instruction. Now, th these are the words of Woodrow Kroll. I like this guy, Woodrow Kroll. That it's to be more than just a theory, but it's to be a reality that's present in our lives. He says this. When we seek Christ's word above all others, Christ's encouragement before all others, Christ's truth instead of all others, then we will be pleasing to him more than all others. Something we know, but to once again repeat the quote from Henry Blackaby, what you do next reveals what you really believe about God. So with that, brothers and sisters, I'd ask you to be upstanding, bow your heads, we'll close in a word of prayer, and then we'll spend some time just in fellowship and, and maybe praying for each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you so much for the encouragement from your word. And I pray with the word that has gone out today, we will not soon ignore. That we would, Father, take such challenges, take such instructions, take such convictions, and may by your spirit they each be applied to every one of our lives. Father, please give us the courage to do away with things that hinder us. Please give us the boldness to step out and shine as a light for you. Father, that as we look at our exhortation, as we look at our equipping, as we look at our privilege, as we look at our edification, our building up, Father, may we look to you for such things. Father, please help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers only. We ask you to dismiss us now. And as we go from here, May you be glorified with every step that is taken for your kingdom. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much for everybody at home. Thank you for my bass player, Ash. All right, we'll see you guys next week, okay? Catch you later.